Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright. Kneel before me! <laughs> Today we are talking about Minute 40, which begins with Panic at the Opera and ends with a demand to kneel. Back on the show, closing out the week, it is Jay Shepard. Hello, Jay. Hey, guys. I'm glad to join you for this low-key minute. Cool. <laughs> I see what you did there. Oh, Jay. One after another, I tell you. Um, all right. We're right. Ra- we're wrapping up, uh, you know, we couldn't get enough of our ocular extraction from our last minute. So, of course, this minute has to have a little bit more, a little just a bit of that juicy, juicy extraction. And, of course, Loki's smiling reaction to the panic he's creating. It's it's kind of fun. And this is really where you get to see um, the joy that he has in the mischief that he's creating. He is joyful. Joyful, Loki. Although I have a question for the two of you. Do you feel like this is the same Loki that we are, that we're watching by the time we get to the TV show? Like this is, he's pretty malicious. I mean, he's, he's, you know, I'm assuming this guy doesn't die, but he does end up looking like Nick Fury. Do you feel that, uh, I don't know. Do you feel like this is like, should we be liking this Loki? I guess is a question. I think this Loki is supposed to, you know, he's supposed to be the villain. I don't think uh, you're supposed to be identifying with him, but I think you might, you know, be at some point going, wow, look at, you know, this is kind of cool what he can do here. Or, you know, he's going to stand up against the Avengers or, uh, you know, that was a good line that he had, you know, when he was talking to Thor or somebody like that. Um, it is at, at least at the beginning of the Loki TV show, since this is, you know, the Loki that we're seeing here at the end of the movie is supposed to be the one that immediately goes into the Loki TV show continuity-wise. Yeah, right. um, I think it is. I mean, there's that sort of um, arrogance uh, that follows through, but he very quickly transitions to more of the Loki that we got across the MCU that, that Tom Hiddleston had created, for, you know, in the other Thor films um, and, and the other um, Avengers films and stuff like that, as we, as we saw him uh, in the original timeline then. I suppose that's because, to a certain extent, he's uh, powerless, largely, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he finds himself in a situation where he doesn't have the same abilities that he could have uh, when he's... Well, and in the TV show, Mobius is, you know, psychoanalyzing him right there in, uh, like, episode two, I think, and, uh, you know, basically gets him to admit why he's doing... Like, why do you want to rule these people, you know, and getting to admit his his need for, you know, adoration and stuff like that. Or an adulation. Yeah, it's it's it is interesting, and I I do think that I don't know. I guess I think that going especially directly from this film into the TV show, like there is an element of him that I I find him a little more uh, like I, I feel like there's a lot more evil in him at this point maybe than than just um, you know mischief, but. Um, I don't know. I guess yeah. we'll see. By the time we get to that point um, later in this film, uh, toward the end of it, you know, I'll maybe reevaluate and see if I think I, I, that. I think, I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's definitely mischief, but I, I don't know how evil it is. It's just that there's a lot of what we see him doing in this film where he doesn't feel like he has any peers in, in this, that he can just pretty much do whatever he wants, um, 
you know, unabated. Um, and you know, it's, if, if it weren't for those, you know, darn Avengers, he would have gotten away with it too. <laughs> oh, he needs to pull, he should have, instead of changing his costume, he should have just had a mask he could take off right here. Yeah. Under the horns, it's just an old man. Just head. His face doesn't change. It's no, just it's Richard E. Grant. He takes his mask off and it's Richard E. Grant. Oh. oh my gosh, Andy. You fixed Let's it. Just... You fixed the entire MCU. Uh, all right. Um, so we get the eye we get the results of the eyeball scan. And again, it really does make it look like it pulled the whole eyeball out. Like the scan that we're getting, it's like either this is a weird camera system that actually goes under your uh, under your eyelids to kind of scan your whole eyeball. Again, why? It's just a retinal scanner. <laughs> it's the rotating still... blade thing that's got the cameras <laughs> yeah. on it. It's just it's a sophisticated iPhone, really, is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> this is Apple's next model. Yeah. I'm sure this is what we'll be seeing. <laughs> Um, I just, I am horrified when I see this image of the eyeball and it's still looking around, which I really, I really find disconcerting because it makes me think it's still attached in his head. He's still controlling it to some capacity and he's looking inside this giant, um, thing that has pulled his eyeball out. <sighs> oh God. Yeah. I, when it's moving around. Uh, yeah. 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 I do not like eye stuff, um, with, you know, anything that has got needles and, people having to touch their eyes or anything like that in movies. I do not like to go get mine looked at because they always do stuff that makes my skin crawl. They're bad people is what we're saying. <laughs> the people who decide to go into, they're like dentists, dentists and, and people who work. I mean, valuable profession. I like seeing, but man, you gotta, like, it just feels like they're out to get me. That's Except for those of you who do that and listen to the show. We do. Love we love you. you. Yeah, And we know you're trying to better yourself, and that's why you listen to this show. <laughs> but they'll be the first people to complain when a movie does it wrong. Right, exactly. <laughs> Them and archers. I think we've exactly. that settled something. That's picky, not picky how you people. would extract an eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> what are these people doing? This what is are ridiculous. They doing? <laughs> Uh, well, we do see this. We do see the screen. We do see that Clint Barton was successful. It says Netzhautscan Kenzeichnung, which translates to retinal scan marking, and then positive Erkenung, which is positive recognition. And then at the bottom, the green appears and it says Entrigeln, which is unlock. So that is how we know that he did, in fact, get the eyeball, the correct eyeball, so that he can go in and steal this uh, well packaged. Iridium. It's <laughs> and it, why why does a security company have iridium in their offices? Well, okay, this is my sense that it's not. Uh, well, weirdly, the oh, the it's scientist, like a vault. It's yeah, I think it's a security place where he he's storing it here. But uh, again, his name yes. is uh, well not mm -hmm. credited as such, but uh, you know Schaefer. he he is Schaefer as we see on the film. And it is the uh, the name of this place as well, right? So yeah, so it's like his. I don't know. Is he a scientist who has enough money where he also has created a whole security company just to store the stuff that he needs? Hmm. And maybe he's hiding it from Nick Fury as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Although I would think that um, he would be more inclined to uh, let the people who are trying to work against Shield use it, and they could have just asked. Maybe that's what he was trying to say. 
you could have just asked me. And I don't want to say he was working for Hydra because I don't want to, you know, lump all the people in Stuttgart, Germany into the same, you know, barrel. But <laughs> but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> here we are. <laughs> so, yeah. But here's something else. I understand that Loki walked up, hit a guy with his cane flipped another guy over and pulled out something that looks like it's from Men in Black to pull a guy's eyeball out. Mm -hmm. But do you find it weird that everybody in here runs out of the building and, like, nobody says, hey, we should stop that guy? Don't do that thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is strange. But they were here for the opera or event or political event, whatever they were here for. They weren't here to support this kind of behavior. Except for that one old man, which I did not see in this scene. The one that will no, show up yeah. I th- probably in your next minute, I think. I don't know if he's in here or if he's just a passerby outside. Yeah, because I, we never see him. I, I, like you said, if he's in here, it's just impossible to tell. I, I don't yeah. know if he's running in here, yeah. one of the people running around. But yeah, iridium. So iridium is a real element. And uh, this is kind of what it looks like often it does come in meteors and 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 comes here and there's not a lot of it in the crust which i guess is why it's fairly uh fairly rare and but again i feel like this is a very um extensive and expensive way to store a piece of iridium Uh, but maybe i just don't shop for iridium often enough maybe this is maybe it is so rare that scientists (laughs) really do have to store it this way (laughs) you don't shop for enough iridium (laughs) <laughs> it's at Joanne Fabrics if you really need it. You'd have to ask. <laughs> it's in the back. But, yeah. I, I, when I was looking at wedding rings, I didn't ask for the iridium models. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you have this in iridium? It might be a little hot. I don't know. Is this supposed right. to be radioactive? Or? Right. <laughs> I don't think so. Is it? Is it radio? It sure sounds radioactive. Uh, basically, any strange metal, yeah, sounds radioactive, so... Like, irradiate. Well, here it is. Iridium, a very hard, brittle, silvery-white transition metal of the platinum group. It is considered the second-densest naturally-occurring metal after osmium, and it was named after Isis, the Greek goddess Isis, the personification of the rainbow because of the striking and diverse colors of its salts. Okay, that's interesting Hmm. to me. The second-heaviest metal after Ozzy Osbourne, I said? (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Um, it is one of the most corrosion-resistant metals, even at temperatures as high as 2,000 Celsius. And so I guess that's why, you know, they the Marvel scientist... Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know who the, the, the screenwriters are reaching out to to try going, what would make sense? Is it iridium or should I do osmium? Trying to figure right. out specifically what <laughs> and, and I, you know, there's enough um in the comics at least, there's enough other materials. You know, I know why they wouldn't necessarily want to go to vibranium or adamantium or something like that at this yeah, point, right, this right. early on. You know, they didn't want to tease any of that stuff. But um I mean well obviously they They've teased that with Cap's shield from Mm -hmm. uh, Captain America, the first Avenger. But I I don't know. Why wouldn't they just, you know, make up something and like, I don't know, to just make people not not even question it? (laughs) Yeah. But to your point, like when we were talking about, um, you know, 
the fact that there's a lot of sci-fi elements in here, not necessarily just fantasy, like this is one of those moments. Like we had a lot of these conversations in Iron Man because a lot of the things that they were talking about um, were things that were, you know, they, you could call it sci-fi. Like it wasn't, yeah. they were talking about real metals. They were talking about real scientific things as they were having these conversations. It's just kind of pushing it to kind of beyond the point of, of reality, which is what science fiction is. And so to a certain extent, I suppose that's why they're picking something like Iridium, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just it lends enough credence to make people go, oh, that's a real word that I've heard. And, you know, yeah. it's sort of that, um, you know, the day after tomorrow sort of sci-fi thing For where sure. it's not it, – we can't do it today, but it's like near future. Yeah, right, right. Kind of stuff. Except for the eyeball extractor. jeez. <laughs> Now, it's interesting. Iridium, this is uh, maybe this is another reason that they tied it in. It is used as a source of gamma radiation for the treatment of cancer using brachytherapy. Um, mm. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe they saw, hey, this one has gamma on its uh, Wikipedia page. We need to lock that down <laughs> let's, before anybody let's, else let's, does. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Copyright. We're all gamma all the time. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I do, I, I like the container that the Iridium's in. I think that it's interesting that, um, it's lit, it's designed to be lit when it's in there. And then as soon as Clint lifts it out, the light turns off. Uh, you know, it's fancy. It looks high tech. I, it's kind of fun. I enjoy the way that all this plays out. Me too. Yeah. That feels nice. And, um, you know, maybe that is the uh, thing that keeps the radiation from affecting somebody and until you take it out and it turns it off. <laughs> right, right. Sorry. Exactly. Now, one thing that um, we've talked about a number of times with the movie that I think is interesting is this shift that they use very smartly with the music to create a shift in tone. We've had it a couple times where you have music playing and then it just cuts. And like, you know, the last example I remember is when we were in Russia and uh, it's very serious music as uh, as the Russians are interrogating Natasha. And then suddenly the phone rings and that punctuates the moment and the music stops because now, hey, we're shifting tones and now it's going to be a little more comedic. This is another great use of that, where we've had this classical piece playing through all of this. And as he lifts the the iridium out of this chamber, the music stops and it shifts to much more foreboding music, which really kind of sets us up for Loki's grand entrance on the plaza here in Stuttgart as he's about to present himself to the world. I love these moments that we've had three of them now in the film where the music transition really gives us a sense of tone shift. And um, I don't know. I like it. How does it play for the two of you? As I've gotten older, I find that um, I, I'm not paying as much attention to the music. I mean, the music, I hear it like it it affects my uh, appreciation or emotional impact of a scene or something like that. But it doesn't sit as much in the forefront as it did to me when, you know, I was younger and like, you know, going to see Star Wars for the first time where it's just like, wow, like I I can hear all of the tones, you know, uh, and all the different songs. And now it just, you know, it it, it evokes this, you know, it's the background element that adds into it, uh, unfortunately. I appreciate it. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, it's another tool. It's another shifting tool. And I think I, I just am appreciating more and more of those, of every sort of sensory trigger that they pull on me. And, and I think it's a well architected scene as a result. Like that's, it works. 
do you think Alan Silvestri um, like looks at this and and knows that they're going to be using the like the string quartet piece here, and then he offers uh, here's how we could transition it, or is this more like a directorial choice? Do you think, or I I would think that there's probably a little bit of both. Like I would guess that. I don't know. I, I I don't know where the the quartet came in. Like if they had already picked the quartet and then said, "Hey, we want to have a quartet playing," and then asked them, "What would be a piece that would that we might play at something like this?" And they found some pieces and probably got some some uh, suggestions also from Silvestri as to what could potentially work that has those big hits that we have later in or in this in kind of the scene as Loki mm-hmm. grabs the scientist and flips him onto the table. Like there are some big like string hits and everything. Everything. And so they probably were trying to find the right piece. And then it does feel like this piece shifts into orchestral toward the end and not just kind of the four piece, um, the four strings. Yeah. And so I think that they probably worked pretty closely with Silvestri to try finding the right way to kind of make that shift and then transition from that into the rest of the music. So I, I would imagine there were a lot of conversations going on between all of them. Because that's obviously something that, you know, you can't just set up and post like you do with a lot of music, right? Because you do have this um, quartet uh, playing yeah. something. And I mean, and granted, you could swap out the music that they're playing. But then, of sure. course, you know, the people that really know how to play violin would say that's not the right <laughs> fingering for what they're doing. <laughs> One more group so, they've pissed off. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting the way this is all interleaves um, in terms of like just the production of this sequence. Um, yeah, it's pretty it's it's interesting and effective the way that it's the way that it's constructed. Mm hmm. I do like the tone shift also because it works really well for Loki to have this kind of grand entrance out on the plaza here as he magically is making his horned outfit appear. Um, This is something that we've seen him, you know, doing off and on since Thor, where he kind of randomly will change his outfits with his magic. And here we see him as he's walking inside. The thing I don't like about this scene, he's walking inside, he starts changing his outfit. We cut to outside and suddenly we start seeing the scepter like appearing out of nowhere. And that's because, as it turns out, Loki is on the edge of the frame, stepping into it, and the scepter is kind of appearing where the cane is. But because it's on the cut, it almost starts making it look like he's making himself like magically appear out here. It's a weird cut, but I do like I do like the way that um that Loki does kind of have this uh shift in his appearance for the crowd. I thought it was an effective um, dissolve that they use between him and his in his uh, party outfit to his horned outfit. <laughs> Just the matching, or it, it matches well enough. And then I guess the visual artist, you know, morphed or whatever, you know, took parts of the uh, outfit and put them onto him at different times because it looks like it's a it's a varied shift. It's not just like a straight fade between the two or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like the horns appear pretty quickly, but a lot of those other elements, uh, like the the cloak and stuff, they kind of take a little longer to, to appear. Yeah. Right. No, it's it's uh, it's nicely done. I like the way that it works. And uh, and then we get him outside and now we're back to the exterior of Cleveland, <laughs> Cleveland slash Stuttgart. And uh, the, again, the streets are incredibly wet still. Um, it probably just rained after we last saw the exterior. So the whole time, the whole time that he was pulling the eyeball out, it was raining, and then it just stopped. It was everybody crying um, because of the 
because of the eyeball. <laughs> so it's actually not rain. It's a flood of tears outside yes. of the horror. <laughs> the it's horror of seeing of the tears. ocular. But it's actually just the one guy who had his eye out. He's just a big crier. And they. <laughs> it's like they, the little Dutch boy pulled his finger out of the out of the dam. <laughs> like meatloaf and fight club. exactly Uh, like meatloaf and fight club see this is why you need to listen to this show because you won't have comparisons between the marvel cinematic universe and meatloaf (laughs) on any other podcast (laughs) only here folks uh ghostbusters star trek where else have we gone yeah (laughs) always room for meatloaf um the police arrive uh, and Loki does one of his uh, fantastic moves with his uh, scepter where he blasts the front car. This is one of the coolest car stunts that I've seen where the car, I'm not exactly sure exactly how it does this, but it like flips itself up onto its front bumper and then it continues skidding forward on the bumper. I don't know if it's the kind of the blast magic that's holding it in place before it finally flips over or what, but it looks really cool. I love the look of that as it kind of moves down the street. It, it definitely is like an air ram that kicks it up, but yeah, it could have a, um, they could have had a crane there that was holding it um, to make it slide. But yes, that is an impressive, impressive uh, uh, crash there in front of the, the German movie theater. Yes. Or what appears to be a German movie theater. Something plots. Yes. It yes. can't quite tell. Well, I think it's actually the front of the music hall because the the text that's wrapping around it says Stuttgart Philharmonic. So it's probably tied into the uh, the orchestra that's nearby. Gotcha. Well, at the time they filmed it, that was it, it looked like I mean it was an empty marquee. There was there was nothing in that particular building uh, when they were filming back in, in two thousand eleven, two thousand ten. Um, but now it is uh, Jack Casino, Cleveland's Jack Casino. Wow. Uh, which is on that ground floor and maybe even higher. They go for the really fancy names for their casinos. In <laughs> yes, they do. Well, you know, <laughs> ace uh, high, I guess. I don't know. Jacks are wild. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> oh, you know what? I'm such a gambler. That never occurred to me that it would be related to the cards. <laughs> Jack. Oh, you thought it was just some guy named Jack? Steve's (laughs) Casino. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Steve. (sighs) Man. All right. Well, we get this fantastic police car uh, flip. And then Loki does a little bit of his Loki uh, jumping around where he he magically appears in front of the group a few times to say, nope, not this way, not this way, because apparently he's hurting them. It's kind of fun. It, uh, I don't know, it. It plays like Loki. You know, he's being playful. He does his little appearances. How does the how does how do these little moments that we have with Loki work for you before he jumps into his uh kneel before Zod speech? Yeah, the holographic stuff, like like the the where he's he's duplicating himself. Does that I mean, does that play? Is that a thing that we that we accept? I, that's very much Loki, I think. Well, it's very much Loki. I just wonder if it's like I it, it's fine. I mean, it's fine for me. This this whole this whole sequence leading into the Neil before Zod bit is for me. It's it's a little harder to I don't know to wrap my head around that um, that Loki's going to take this minute in between all the other stuff that's going on, and uh, it it feels like a cheap trick. It feels like a cheap trick leading into a big fight scene. And it doesn't, to me, feel as authoritative as maybe he wants it to 
to feel, right? So what what is your like what do you think he would be trying to do? I mean, cuz he's trying to keep the crowd controlled, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Mhm. So I don't I don't know. Okay. I mean, it's a good question. I what else would they do, Pete? Uh, I get it. Like, I, I, it is a good question. I, I just feel like for me, this is a this this little bit where he makes the crowd kneel and does it with the projection is maybe a bit too playful for the sequence that we just saw and the sequence we're about to see. Right? It's like we just saw him take an eyeball out of a guy in a scene of great brutality and we're about to see a great big fight and this just feels frivolous uh, yeah and maybe that's part of the reason that i uh you know brought it up because it's it's one of those moments where it just feels um i, I don't know like as somebody who's going to be the new ruler of midgard it just ends up feeling kind of like circus tricks like something about it just doesn't feel very i mean circus it's threatening in the sense that hey i'm a stuttgardian and I've never seen a person <laughs> change change clothes with magic or magically appear in front of me before. Uh, so yeah, I'd be a little freaked out uh, whether I saw him pluck an eyeball out or not. It's it is pretty creepy, but it's just like he's jumping around like he might as well be like you know with a little giggle or something. Like it just seems very impish and it doesn't seem very leaderly. And also, I just honestly I don't like the way some of the shots are constructed. Like you know, especially the third time we see him appear because it's kind of this wide. Uh, shot from higher angle and he appears like off in the far bottom left corner like right between some picnic tables and it's just it's just weird like the the way that it's constructed isn't it doesn't hold up for me as well as like the last shot of this minute where we get a low angle shot of him this is a power angle now he's got this dramatic building behind him it's like this is the sort of thing that i expect when i'm looking at a leader and those other shots just feel like you know, again, I, he's the god of mischief. Sure, it all ties in, but something about it just feels a little, a little weaker. To well, me. is I mean, is that really the point of the scene then to really make you feel like, wait a second, this, why should we be listening to this guy? I mean, he he isn't nothing. He is just cheap tricks. Uh, he is not a leader. He is not leader material. I mean, that I think that may be the. Um, the point that they're trying to get across. Yeah. Um, other than the fact that they were uh, trying to have, what was it? The Stuttgardians? Yeah. Um, Stuttgardians. That was that's rough for our, <laughs> for our friends from Stuttgart. That's, I, I'm pretty sure. They're Midgardian not- Stuttgardians. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I like the fact that we do get to see him do some of this, you know, where he is trying to intimidate what he, you know, w- what he sees as the, the general populace of, of the planet. Right. And, you know, the Avengers are just about to show up and prove that, you know, there are people that can't stand up to him uh, as as well as just an old man as well. You know, so. Well, it'll be interesting to continue this conversation. Um, We're going to end it today, though, uh, here at uh, Minute 40. Hey, just out of curiosity, Jay, uh, looking at the Avengers films, the four of them, how would you rank them? Do you have, uh, uh, is that something you could quickly do off the top of your head? Um, Yeah, probably. I mean, I think Endgame is is really good. I think I prefer Infinity War over Endgame just because it seems a little overly long. To me, um, I would probably put this movie uh, third and then Age of Ultron last 
just because that's where it falls. Though I, there are moments of Age of Ultron that I just really enjoy. I think there's some really cool stuff going on in there. Um, just you know, character moments that get set up, and um, uh, you know, like with a lot of the MCU, get paid off later. Yeah, it's they're they're interesting. It's an interesting um, set of four films when you look at them just by themselves. You know, I I, I think that it um, there's definitely strength in these first two, but I definitely find that it's the last two that really stand. Um, you know tower over these other ones yeah it's not a quartet of films or, or some of these you know are not trilogies that you would actually watch as a trilogy because you you would miss out on yeah, character right. moments and and building like you wouldn't know what was going on i mean it would, it's kind of like more like watching just kind of james bond films that are slightly connected to each other yeah um not, not even the <laughs> right. more recent stuff yeah yeah right right well, Jay, it has been fun chatting with you all week. We've had a lot of great conversations. Thank you so much, so much for joining us all week. Oh, absolutely. This is always a blast. I love coming, talking the Marvel Movie Minute with you guys and uh, appreciate um, all of the promotion that you give my site, mclocationscout.com. So thank you. Uh, it's absolutely a necessity for this show. <laughs> Truly. about it every episode, I tell you. Uh, we'll check out his links in the show notes, everybody. And uh, yeah, go down that rabbit hole on the MCU Location Scout website. It is a very fun website to poke around in. Uh, we'll be back next week with another guest. Should be fun. So, Pete, thanks as always. Don't forget ocular extractions on the merch store. <laughs> Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.